This podcast is brought to you by the Village of Bedford Park, your home for business. Over 450 businesses strong and growing with a safe, reliable Lake Michigan water supply. Visit VOBPBiz.com and bring your business home to the Village of Bedford Park. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's 12.03, Thursday afternoon, September 29th. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rob Hart. The Noon Business Hour presented by the Village of Bedford Park, the market for tech wearables heating up thanks to some new additions. We'll cover that in our next segment. But right now, the latest reading on the economy is out today. Along with an update on jobless claims, we're joined by Paul Christopher, head of global market strategy at the Wells Fargo Investment Institute based in St. Louis. Paul, thanks for joining us today. It is the uh, the biggest uh, source of contention among uh, economists in 2022, and that is, uh, are we in a recession? And one side believes, yes, it was two uh, consecutive quarters of contraction. That's a recession. The other side says, no, not quite. You have to uh, consider other factors like the jobless rate. And uh, where do you fall on this particular divide? Yeah, it's it's true that you really do have to consider other factors. But the fact that we have had now two consecutive quarters of negative GDP, so contraction in the economy in the first half of the year, in the in the years since 1948, there have been 10 such occurrences, 10 times of two consecutive negative quarters. And not once have we avoided a recession after we saw that since 1948. So it's a very good indicator going forward. And we do see the economy weakening. We think a recession is inevitable. Yeah, the third quarter is probably going to come in a little bit stronger, but don't let that fool you. The economy's on its way down. We think a recession is inevitable. What would it take, though, for uh, the the center of gravity of uh, economic contraction to uh, really start pulling down the job market? Because uh, at this point, the labor market is so tight, uh, you will see companies probably doing a hiring freeze as opposed to a layoff just because it's so hard to find people these days. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, perversely, when you get a really low number of unemployment claims, so very few people out of work this last week, uh, that actually makes the market even more nervous and, and enhances the sell-off because now the market figures, well, gee, if labor is that strong, the Fed's going to have to hike by even more. Uh, but the thing to keep in mind if you're an investor is really that, that by the time we get into recession, uh, the employers will have found other ways. They'll cut hours. Uh, they'll remove uh, job openings that have been posted but not yet filled. They'll do everything they can, as you said, to keep people. But in the end, we think the unemployment rate will tick higher. And unemployment is one of the last support pillars to fall for the economy before a recession. So don't be fooled. Uh, we're on the way to a recession, and and, uh, and the labor market is doing just what it, it, it usually does at this point. The 35,000-feet view of the economy kind of uh, dep- paints a picture of a, a wobbling kind of machine. Um, is, is this an economy that is still kind of lumbering out of all the uh, pandemic shocks uh, that it's uh, taken since uh, March of 2020? 
Sure. I mean, and, and some of those shocks are positive. Let's think about it. I mean, the, the S&P 500 index put up great numbers the last three years, almost 100% gains in three years. So people in the top income brackets can, can skim off a lot of earnings uh, and, and keep cash around for quite a while. Uh, and that cash is being used right now. As long as that cash is still around, it's still a positive shock for the economy. And so the Fed has to work even a little bit harder to, to remove credit from the economy, basically like a vacuum cleaner. Uh, and once that cash is gone, it's going to be difficult to find new cash. That's why we think a recession, probably worst if it comes in the winter before we get better things happening in the middle of next year. Paul Christopher, head of global market strategy at the Wells Fargo Investment Institute based in St. Louis. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up next, a look at what's hot in smartwatches and other wearables. Discussing the news affecting your money. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Fitbit has released a new device with wearables, uh, well, while wearables from Apple and Samsung are becoming more popular. Let's get an update from Ina Freed, Chief Technology Correspondent with Axios, based in San Francisco. Ina, thanks for joining us today. What is the state of the wearables market? Because um, it seems like some people, they're afraid to jump in because they don't know if the technology is going to change and evolve overnight and others are worried about uh, the novelty wearing off after a couple of months. Yeah, I mean, this is a category I've been watching very closely for just the reasons you state. You know, I try out most of the latest wearables when they come out, and then, you know, within a month, they're sitting uh, on my nightstand. I get tired of charging them. I'm not sure I'm getting enough from them. But the latest crop is making it harder to put them down. Um, And I think the biggest thing that's happening is they're putting in some sensors that could save your life. And that starts to be pretty compelling. There must have been a recent uh, software update with uh, the Apple Watch not too long ago because a number of people uh, in my social circle who have them uh, have been talking about those uh, certain life-saving features. For example, uh, uh, someone dropped their uh, their Apple Watch a couple of days ago, and then they said, uh, it looks like you might have been in a car accident. Should we call the uh, authorities? Um, it, has that been happening a lot to, to a number of people as they get this software up? Well, not the accidental thing you mentioned, although that is kind of funny. It's supposed to really uh, differentiate between a fall, which it can also historically detect. So um, the Apple Watch for a couple generations has been able to detect if you fall. Uh, New sensors in the latest Apple Watches, though, are able to detect a car crash. And I think that is limited to the latest Apple Watch. Um, And call authorities even if you can't. Basically, it'll say, hey, it looks like you've been in a car crash, and if you don't respond, it'll call the authorities. Um, and that, you know, those uses start to become pretty compelling because, you know, yeah, if that happens, I want someone to call for help. And if no one else can do it and a watch can do it, you know, suddenly that starts to become pretty attractive. I would say this generation is getting me close to being like, yeah, I might need to wear this. What is the, uh, the, the, the smartwatch market breakdown, and does it track the smartphone market breakdown when it comes to Apple versus Samsung versus other? Um, you know, I mean, it is similar in terms of the players. I think uh, Apple has more of a share of watch, um, not because Android users are wearing Apple watches. They're not, um, but just because more iPhone users wear an Apple watch than Android users wear a Google or Samsung watch. Um, Fitbit's interesting because obviously Fitbit doesn't make phones. 
Um, it's now owned by Google. It's got a different sort of value that it's trying to argue. You know, it's mostly focused on fitness versus being a general purpose smartwatch, although its highest end models definitely look like a watch, act like a watch. Uh, they just don't have as many apps. But then because Google bought Fitbit, Google's actually using Fitbit's uh, software in um, what will be a new entry into the market, the Pixel Watch, which it's teased and is set to formally announce next month. And then what's the youth marketplace for all of these applications? Because you mentioned the Fitbit, and uh, my oldest daughter did receive one for Christmas last year. And for a couple of months, she was obsessed with it in terms of tracking the number of steps, linking up uh, her progress with uh, uh, some friends. Of course, there are all these parental controls. I'm in charge of the app. Um, is, is this something that kids really get into and enjoy? And is the marketplace adapting to that? I think it's still uh, nascent, if you will. Um, there's a couple of uses, though, that you mentioned. There's certainly, um, you know, older kids, teens, you know, trying to uh, compete with their friends and sort of the fitness thing. The other thing that we're starting to see is parents giving their uh, younger kids who aren't quite ready for a phone, a smartwatch, an Apple watch, because it can um, dial for help. It can call the parents. It can do some of those things in an emergency, um, but it's not like giving them a full phone. So, um, what used to be the role of the iPod Touch in terms of being the gateway, the starter uh, device, if you will, for younger kids, the Apple Watch is in some cases providing that. So it's interesting because the Apple Watch has some appeal to the oldest users in terms of uh, senior citizens, in terms of detecting falls, uh, but then also to young, the youngest crowd in terms of being uh, sort of not quite a smartphone, but able to get help. And of course, if you're among a certain generation, this is just simply uh, the evolution of a device that will help you if you've fallen and you can't get up. Uh, that TV commercial that uh, has been burned into the brains of a certain generation of uh, TV viewers. Ina Fried, Chief Technology Correspondent with Axios, based in San Francisco. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up next, why it's already Christmas at many retailers. Information to make cash and save cash. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Halloween is uh, more than a month away, but many stores already have the Christmas merchandise on display. Let's discuss the early strategy with Jennifer Walker. Chicago-based business writer Jennifer, thanks for joining us today. A couple of years Hello, ago, Rob. well, a couple, a couple of years ago, uh, 2020 to be exact, when uh, a lot of stores <laughs> rolled out their uh, Christmas merchandise in uh, mid to late September, uh, it was pitched as a pandemic, um, a pandemic strategy. That way, if people began their shopping in September, they're not crowding in wall to wall, mouth to mouth, inside the big box store the day after Thanksgiving, and that was a safety measure. Um, did people respond well to that? They liked the idea of just stretching everything out a couple of months? Well, let there be no question about it. Retailers always want to get you in their stores as soon as they can before the holiday season. Obviously, this is the biggest, you know, the biggest spending season for them. So, yeah, they're going to do what they can. You know, whether that worked or not, what we've seen is that people are starting to shop earlier. I mean, I, you know, I did the math before we got on here. We have 88 days, including today until Christmas. That's roughly six to seven paychecks. And given the inflation environment right now and, you know, and, and, and on everything, not just Christmas gifts, but food in particular, given all of that, 
you know, you've got to, you really do have to start thinking about it and be pretty budget conscious about it, um, particularly if you're living on a tight, on a tight budget. So, yeah, this holiday creep, you know, the, this is what retailers always want to do, get you. It's, it's because they want to be top of mind for, for it's, it's top of mind for share of pocket. They want you to think about going to them first. So they're going to they're gonna have, a, have sales and do whatever they can to get you in the stores. Now, I will say this. Uh, Costco has already rolled out uh, the Christmas trees and, and, and a lot of the toys. <laughs> I was there with my kids a couple of weeks ago, and uh, they started uh, noticing things that they might want. And I said, okay, well, you know, Santa Claus is going to get a jingle, but uh, uh, just be sure you're good. So it, it, do, it does certainly help you out uh, having uh, the holiday stuff already on display on August 31st. Yeah, you know what, there is, there is some truth to that too, Rob, because, I mean, when, when you think about this, when I was a kid, you know, we really didn't start shopping until Good Friday. Good Friday is roughly 30, 31 days before Christmas, not much time. Well, doing, being able to do this, you kind of have a little bit of a time to, to shop for discounts and look for what you want and know what the kids want. I can't get our kids to give us a Christmas list till Thanksgiving. If I go out and say, hey, I saw this on, on sale in September, and they say, oh, that'd be cool, then I would, you know, I could pick that up, you know, in September or October, or whatever, and save some money. You know, the problem that we have with these sales is like, so last year, they're pushing everybody to come out early because we had all the supply chain issues. And it's like, if you don't come out early, you could end up losing out. It's kind of a different kind of FOMO, you know, if you're missing out of buying things. But now this year, we've got this inflation issue, and they're trying to say, spread out your, spread out your budget, start now, and get out there and do it. And we've got sales coming up. We've got, we've got uh, Target's doing their deal days. That starts, I think, uh, October 1st. And uh, I'm sorry, October 6th. And then Prime Days again after their July days. Prime Days again, October 11th and 12th. So these guys are, are they want you to be thinking about the holiday shopping. They want to put things on sale because they want you to come to them to buy them now. Jennifer Waters, Chicago-based business writer. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This is Chicago's news traffic and weather station, News Radio 105.9. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Good afternoon. I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. Parts of Florida are still seeing major rain as Tropical Storm Ian moves towards South Carolina. The latest coming up next in a special report from CBS News. Thousands of flights are canceled due to the impact of the former hurricane. In Technology Thursday, a bipedal robot is now in the Guinness Book of World Records for its time in the 100-meter dash. WBBM business. The markets are lower. The Dow is down 555 points. The NASDAQ is down 360. And the S&P 500 is down 90. We have 59 degrees right now in Chicago under mostly sunny skies, going up to 64 today. Mostly sunny and nice, turning milder in the afternoon, going down to 48 tonight. It's 1231. 
CBS News special report. Ian is now a tropical storm, but it's still causing damage. Moments ago, President Biden at FEMA headquarters. This could be the deadliest hurricane in Florida's history. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. The impacts of this storm are, are historic, and the damage that was done uh, has been historic, and this is just off initial assessments. The Sarasota area is hard hit. Ed McCrane is the county emergency management chief. City of Northport, a lot of flooding. It's, it's typical down there. It's just on the geography and the, the water flows will have a lot of issues with residents being able to not to get out of their home because of the water. They were not necessarily in an evacuation area, but the river came to meet them. CBS News correspondent Manuel Bohorkas is in Fort Myers. The priority today, of course, will not only be assessing the damage, but trying to rescue anybody who was caught in an area that is now inaccessible or flooded. CBS News Special Report. I'm Steve Futterman. It's 12.32 as the noon business hour continues, presented by the Village of Bedford Park. Markets are sharply lower today. We're joined by Brian Battle, Director at Performance Trust Capital Partners and Advisor at PT Asset Management based in Chicago. Brian, thanks for joining us today. It seems like the markets couldn't sustain yesterday's momentum. A bit of a rally yesterday. Now all of those gains were handed back. Is this strictly because Bank of America downgraded Apple stock? I don't think so, Rob. You know, we have this is uh, in, remember we got to keep everything in context. So, over the past ten years, we've had experimental monetary policy. So we've kept rates really, really low for a really, really long time, and that has distorted valuations in the stock market. So now that we're getting back to more normalized uh, interest rate policy, everybody knows interest rates are going up. Um, that's causing distortions in the stock market. We're trying to figure out what stuff is worth. So yes, it doesn't help that the the downgrades tech because the NASDAQ definitely is off about 3% today, um, but the components are also getting hit on really the driver is what is consumer demand going to be. So it looks like the Federal Reserve is going to jack rates up to try and tame inflation at the at the willful and knowingly expense of they're going to cause a recession. So what we're trying to price now is how big is that recession and are any of these companies overvalued if we do have a recession? Is uh, this simply a fact that we're entering a new era of monetary policy because you have an entire generation of investors and economists and observers uh, who have never really lived in a elevated interest rate environment? I mean, we haven't even raised interest rates all that much, uh, historically speaking, and uh, the markets are selling off uh, like it's uh, 2008 all over again because really the last time there was a higher interest rate environment, we're talking like above 3%, it's the late 90s. Yeah, that's right, Rob. So we are in an era that's new for a lot of investors and a lot of economic participants. You know, if you're 21, you weren't in part- technically you weren't really participating in the economy 20 years ago, 15 years ago, for sure, 30 years ago. So this is a new era. And what, it's not just new for the part- it's not just new for consumers or, or the populace here in the U.S., there's also a new era for the people that are in charge. The Federal Reserve has never ended quantitative easing. They've never ended, uh, you know, the, the type of zero interest rate policy we had for 10 years. The reason there's a lot of pressure this week is there's a lot, federal, a lot of Federal Reserve governors talking about, hey, we're going to be hang tough there. We're going to raise rates. And we're seeing it right now. The median 30-year mortgage rate is 6.7%. So in a $300,000 house, last year rates were about 3%. So net, net, net on your monthly payment, you can afford 30% less house than you could last year. So that's sort of that's exactly what higher rates are supposed to do is sort of suppress demand. 
and what the stock market is trying to price, because really the stock market is just a reflection of what the, what the companies are worth, is how much is demand going to decline and who's it going to affect? The, the chip makers are all hit now because there's diminished demand for PCs. So a lot of the chip makers are under pressure. So um, good news is, I guess the, the good news, bad news is it's, it's worse elsewhere. Um, England, they just hired, uh, they just uh, elected a new prime minister. Um, the central bank in England said they're going to raise rates. And then, whoops, the, they started to break the bond market and they changed their mind. So there's a lot of stuff happening. It's not just us. That's unprecedented. And, the, you know, it's, it's trite to say there's going to be volatility in the market, but we're starting to get to the point where rubber is hitting the road. We're actually changing policy. And in England, they just, exper- they just experienced a policy error, which is something we're trying to avoid here in the States. Brian Battle, director at Performance Trust Capital Partners and advisor at PT Asset Management based in Chicago. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up in Technology Thursday, a robotic sprinter makes history. The WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's Technology Thursday, and this afternoon we're exploring an amazing feat by a two-legged robot. We're joined by Paul Hockman, president of Humongous Media and former tech editor for the Today Show based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Paul, thanks for joining us today. Let's talk about Cassie and what Cassie can do on the running track and uh, her record-breaking performance. Sure. First of all, I really like the intro. Amazing feat. I don't know uh-huh. how to put yeah. that pun off myself, but I like it. Anyway, but that said, Cassie is a next-generation robot that just broke uh, a Guinness Book of World Records record, uh, and it completed a 100-meter uh, run a bipedal robot is what it is in 24 seconds. Now that doesn't sound that amazing. Usain Bolt um, is still under, you know, a little over 9.5 seconds. So that's not as fast, but what's really amazing is it's a, it's bipedal. That means it's two feet, not four. Um, and it is machine learning that is helping this robot move. Uh, it is unsettling to watch for sure because what these guys at, at uh, Oregon State University have mastered in their robotics department, they have mastered the ability for this uh, robot to keep itself balanced by learning its environment. It's machine learning. And by the way, it completed a 5K in about uh, in 50 minutes or so, which is, you know, by the way, I don't know if I could complete a 5K in 50 minutes. So the point is, it's learning about its surroundings. It is not using eyes or external sensors to do it. It is all about um, basically adjusting to what it feels. See, the next frontier of uh, these bipedal running robots is to uh, have machine learning and AI uh, that has a program that can complete a marathon and then not stop talking about it. <laughs> By the way, nobody's figured out how, even with machine learning, to make that stop. It but just it just wears the T-shirt and just every sentence begins with, uh, as a robot that finished a marathon, dot, dot, dot. Um, what are, I don't. My brother has run a bunch, and he is he hasn't stopped either. So I, I appreciate what you just said. Correct. What are the what are the practical applications though of a Cassie outside of uh, entering the Guinness Book of World Records and being on Ripley's Believe It or Not? Well, I would urge any of the listeners to look to to take a look at the video look over your shoulder. The university posted. Yeah, look over your shoulder. But here's the thing: it is about easy couple of easy applications that are quite pro- profound. One, burning building. There are a lot of robots that can't make it into unstable uh, places. And if a firefighter is deciding whether or not to send a live human being firefighter in to determine whether or not somebody's left in a burning building, um, they don't want to make that determination themselves because they're sending in a human being that's obviously risking a life. In the case of a, a robot that can negotiate, as this can, 
uneven surfaces and learn instantly from its surroundings, make it up. And, and if you attach a camera to it, determine if somebody's in there. That's a really, that's a real old application. Another one, when you watch the video, if you get a chance to, it is quite clear that someone who has lost the ability to use their lower legs and, and is in a wheelchair could easily, you could easily imagine that person being perched on this and suddenly being mobile. And one of the things that folks in wheelchairs are, talk about fairly frequently is the challenge socially, and there's some wheelchairs that adapt to this, but the challenge socially is everyone look down at you, literally. In this case, you are now up at, say, eye level. So the point is there are already applications for, you know, for folks with paralysis, for safety, and so forth. Paul Hockman, president of Humongous Media, former tech editor for the Today Show, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thanks for joining us today. Join us at this time tomorrow for Entrepreneur Friday and still to come, gauging the impact of Hurricane Ian on air travel. Three minutes of financial planning. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Air travel has suffered major disruptions due to Hurricane Ian, which is now moving northeast as a tropical storm. Let's get an update from Joe Schwederman, professor of public services and director of the Chattuck Institute. Institute at DePaul University, based in Chicago. Joe, thanks for joining us today. Uh, when a hurricane is bearing down on a United States location, whether it's Florida, New Orleans, uh, other coastal areas, um, what do the airlines do one day out, two days out, day of, uh, to move all of their equipment out of the storm zone? You know, much more now than, say, five, ten years ago, is they really are, are preemptive about making sure planes don't get stuck in the uh, troubled location. So we saw earlier this week uh, quite a few, you know, preemptive cancellations, even flights that probably could have got in and out because they don't want to take the risk because that's when this ripple effect happens around the country. Uh, but airlines have also gotten better at letting travelers be flexible. So, you know, boy, we got evacuation orders uh, where they're allowing people to return early to rebook their trips. But I can say that just the sheer news coverage this is generating is really spooking airlines about Florida travel for the next few months. Now, when it comes to uh, allowing passengers to rebook, uh, is this simply a case of uh, some COVID innovations uh, meeting good old-fashioned hurricane preparation as far as cancellation fees and, and making sure you're on an earlier flight? That's exactly right. And we know that COVID really, the airline's got a black eye for sort of nickel and diming people are going to give you credits to, to travel, but they're going to expire or you have to go out of the same airport you were originally going to go from, those kind of things. And Congress took note and said, you know, look, you just can't do this to passengers to, uh, you know, sort of not give their money back, but but make them rebook. So they're getting, uh, in this case, they're sort of rolling out the red carpet. And I think it's partly, uh, you know, to use it bluntly, just damage control, because those environments at the airport the next few days are going to just be uh, pretty hellacious with people, you know, wanting to get back uh, when those airports open, hopefully tomorrow. And that's, I uh, don't envy those airline employees. What is the hub situation for the airlines in the state of Florida? I know uh, American as a hub in Miami. Uh, what about uh, Orlando and Tampa? Yeah, that's right. I mean, Miami's a big Latin American hub, so the fortunately Miami is not going to be closed quite as long as some others. Uh, but boy, when I saw they're closing Orlando, which is not a coastal airport, that really affects the supply chain, the uh, the you know the airline system because that airport is such a workhorse with wide body flights from Europe and everything else. So really, the whole south of Florida, you know, is closed. So and Jacksonville, which is at the northern end, is closed probably for a shorter period. And I don't remember a time uh, in my many years watching aviation that we had every major airport in Florida 
closed. I mean, usually there's a relief valves in Jacksonville or Tallahassee for people who, and that's not happening. So I think for the airlines, uh, uh, the good news is, is, is uh, Ian isn't going to sit on the top of Tampa and keep that airport closed for, you know, four or five days. It's likely going to reopen tomorrow. But, man, it's, uh, it's a tough thing for the airlines. And then as this thing uh, scoots up the coast, it may not even be a hurricane or a tropical storm, but it is a lot of rain. It does pack a lot of wind. And if it goes uh, north, it could cause problems potentially in Washington and New York and uh, major East Coast airports. And that's right. And we see how vulnerable those cities are in particular to flooding. And uh, we've we had that, of course, with Hurricane Sandy and, and some others after that. And I think uh, uh, the good news, bad news here is this storm is every bit as, as ferocious as they feared. And so uh, uh, it's it's you know really going to make travel tough with roads closed and things like that. The good news is that no airports appear to have suffered any kind of structural damage that's going to prevent them reopening. You know, so hopefully in a couple of weeks uh, the air system will feel normal, but boy, the ground situation with flooding—that's uh, that's a different story. Joe Schwederman, professor of public services and director of the Chaddock Institute at DePaul University, thanks for joining us today. You'll find past programs and later today a podcast of this hour at wbbmnewsradio.com and the Odyssey app. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.